You know, when Tim and I started this show, one focus we wanted was to really bring a lot of patient voices on board to really give that first person perspective of what it's like to undergo a pain experience and the challenges of navigating the medical system when indeed you need to. This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back to another Pain Reframed wonderful opportunity today to have Dr. Cheryl Keller Capone coming on to talk about her long history of dealing with persistent pain and some of the challenges, but also a lot of the successes and some of the strategies she used, um, both independently developed as well as alongside a couple different healthcare providers. So really an amazing chance to get some insight into a personal journey with pain and a personal journey through the medical system. There's always, as always, a few calls to providers and to patients alike, um, strategies for all of us to get just a little better at helping folks out that are dealing with persistent pain. So without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Cheryl Keller Capone to talk about her experience with persistent pain. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. This is a, a wonderful opportunity and I appreciate it. You bet. Cheryl, do you mind taking just the first few minutes um, as we do in all episodes and kind of give the listeners just a little bit about your background, kind of where you're at and what you're up to in life and, and then we'll dive in from there? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm a research scientist at Penn State and I have a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. And right now uh, we're working on blood cell development and we're genomics labs, so we use blood cell development in mouse as a model system to learn more about uh, gene regulation in mammals. So how, do, how are genes turned on? How are genes turned off? And since we use blood cell development, then we study both normal processes uh, in blood cells as well as uh, abnormal processes that might lead to disease like leukemia, thalassemia, sickle cells, so forth like that. So that, that's where my re- current research is, and I've been here at Penn State for 23 years and, and it's, I really enjoy it. Awesome, Cheryl. Well, thank you so much for that. So so kind of speaking to to our topic for today, can you give a little bit of history sort of relevant to, to your personal journey um, undergoing and experiencing pain? Do you mind kind of, I read your incredible blog and we'll make sure that's available to everybody in the show notes, but do you mind kind of giving an abridged version of kind of your journey? And then Tim and I would love to jump in and, and dive a bit deeper. Start, I will say that, uh, you know, I've always had, uh, I'm hypermobile, so I have more laxity and flexibility than sort of the average person. I've always been somewhat injury prone growing up. And I started actually out even as a child with a number of injuries. Uh, when I was about 10 years old, I remember turning my head in gym class and I was unable to turn it back. And there was a lot of sharp burning pain. And it really, I, I really could not turn my head back to the right for a couple of weeks. Uh, of course, I never saw a doctor. This is in the early 80s. So, you know, people didn't bring their kids to physical therapy at the time. And I really actually had, I've always had limited uh, cervical motion since then, where I always prefer to uh, talk to somebody uh, on my left, because it's always more comfortable for me that. So I I have had some, you know, ongoing neck stiffness and so forth, even as a child. Uh, Then when I was about 13, I was doing a karate class and had an injury, a back injury, resulting from repetitive lumbar hyperextension. So we were doing, tried to, to do bilateral leg lifts and I ha- did not have the control and strength to prevent that lumbar hyperextension. Down the road, I realized later we had, uh, and, and we get into this as we go along, but there was there is evidence of an old bilateral pars fracture uh, on MRI. So whether or not you know, it had happened at that time, I don't know. But it did, it did cause a lot of pain and a lot of ongoing pain uh, since I was 13. So I've always basically dealt with pain 
at, through my home life. But the, I, that didn't actually stop me in that I went on to run track and cross country in high school and college. I ran competitively for college. Cheryl, I'm, I'm just curious at the beginning of your story, did, did you guys investigate this medically at all back then? Did you get images and did you kind of go into the medical system um, even a, a, as a kid, 13, 15 years old? That's funny in a way that uh, no, yes and no. I mean, I had such, it was fairly severe back pain. I felt at that time where, you know, any sort of, uh, especially it was extension based, uh, although I didn't know that that what it was called at the time. You know, I took some time off from gym and eventually I'm complaining to my mom, who's a nurse. And, and you know, of course, I love my mom and she wants what's best for me. But I don't know that anyone really, really appreciated how much pain I was in at the time. And a couple months down the road, um, she takes me to the doctor because I'm still complaining about pain. And they do, you know, standard little scoliosis, bend forward and, and oh, well, there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> so this is the start of there's nothing wrong with you. But, but you know, that did not help resolve any pain. And I just sort of learned to deal with it. And there were times where it would flare up and, and times when it wouldn't. I couldn't wear, I had really even trouble in high school wearing high heels because every time I do that, my, my low back would hurt. I'd have pain. I'd get a numbness in my third and fourth toe, which was then later diagnosed, you know, Morton's aroma. And then this led to, oh, here, you need orthotics for running. And mm. so I, I, I was in the system pretty early. You know, I had physical therapy for the first time at 16 because then you know, I feel like I've been dealing with a lot of pain throughout my life, and I've just sort of learned to deal with it. Uh, in an attempt to sort of address, get rid of this knee pain and, and hip pain, I, I stopped wearing the orthotics. And, and it felt great. My knee and hip started feeling better, but it cleared up temporarily. But then I started having some arch pain. And in 2009, I actually on my birthday, which was horrible, <laughs> I ran this 10-mile race, and I woke up the next day with this sort of painful, swollen ankle. And I went to see an orthopedist. And the diagnosis was posterior tibialis tendonitis. I really had a deep sense that there was something else going on. And I voiced my concerns more than once to the orthopedist and to the physical therapist. And I was reassured that there was not. And this is where my first experience of uh, discussing pain science or being trying to be taught about pain science came in because I was told that, well, there can be chronic pain and it can be residual and you need to work through it and and just develop some strength in your tendon and it's just your brain remembering the pain and I'm like eh, okay but eh, you know not really feeling like like this is really you know there, there's something else going on I really honestly in hindsight can't help but feel that if someone had really taken the time to do a more thorough assessment you know maybe I could have avoided these years of, of chronic pain and suffering you know looking back now you know what what did you think was going on? Did you feel like, you know, this was some undefined life-threatening illness? Did you feel like it was just, you know, some progressive disease process? I'm just curious what you were thinking at that time, if you remember. My thought was, this is nerve pain. I'm having nerve pain. From that point, things don't necessarily get a lot better, at least right. in the near term. Can you kind of walk us through that? You know, I, I slowly started to return. To, I tried to return to running. I continued to have arch pain and some swelling in both feet. It was kind of variable. Sometimes it was free of discomfort. Other times, you know, in hindsight, what I was actually doing is trying to build fitness on top of dysfunction. I was, and I just, because I really wanted to keep running. I'm really not helping myself here by continuing to run. I, I knew that I was getting worse. Things were getting worse. But yet I had medical clearance to run. It just never cleared up and it just got progressively worse. And I'd go back to the orthopedist and they'd say, well, you need to do more foot strengthening or arch strengthening. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm only running 10 miles a week and I came down with a stress fracture. 
And then it's almost no one could believe that I could develop a stress fracture during 10 miles a week. Again, it was on that same leg with the post-tib and back to physical therapy. And I had a gait videotape gait analysis and I was told I need to do hip strengthening. So then we're really doing a lot of focused glute hip strengthening. And, and quite honestly, it was actually, I felt in some ways it seemed to be making my pain worse. And, and then I felt that the, the physical therapist was very frustrated with me because I'm saying this isn't really helping something is this not working? You know, I went through, oh, let me try getting a new pair of orthotics or, and I, at this point, I'm starting to get a little concerned. How can I, how can I not be getting better? I'm following medical advice. Why am I getting worse? This is now two years later. And we went to Disney World and just all the standing and walking. And I wound up having really severe foot pain, bilateral foot pain, you know, I had low back pain and, you know, several days after returning home, the back pain eased up, but then I was out in the yard and I was weeding with my right arm, really pulling hard at uh, some weeds. And as I, it finally broke free, I yanked, you know, my yank, my right arm back. I just stopped. I froze. I thought, oh, something happened. I didn't know what, you know, but something felt strange. Uh, and I woke up the next day and I had just constant tingling in my entire lower leg and foot. And I thought, oh boy, you know. And, and so then we ordered. Uh, then he had an MRI, a lumb, first lumbar MRI. Then we had an MRI of my foot. And then I went. And then they did an EMG, which was very, really not pleasant for the mm-hmm. tibial nerve. Really not pleasant. That really hurt. <laughs> Again, all came back. Uh, you know, for the most part, it came back. Um, the EMG came back normal. The original lumbar MRI did show evidence uh, that I do have uh, spondylolisthesis of L4 and L5. I do have some narrowing on the left uh, foraminal side of L4. Uh, They felt that I didn't have any hard neurological signs because it was sort of a multidermatomal pattern. And so I just kept, kept, they're like, well, there's really nothing wrong, you know, (laughs) Then they, they tested me for celiac disease. They tested me for B6, B12 deficiency. They tested me for a thyroid, all negative. They insisted I go see a nutritionist. I did, and, and I knew my nutrition was fine, and they didn't have anything to say about it either. But I felt that, okay, I'll just keep going. I'll just keep trying to follow all this advice and have try to figure out you know, what we can do. But meanwhile, the back pain was getting worse. The leg pain, the leg and feet pain just kept going worse and worse. And and I had trouble sitting. I had intolerance to sitting. I had intolerance to standing. I also had pain with walking. You know, Cheryl, it's, it's so interesting when you say it sounds like you were told numerous times that nothing is wrong, you know, and, and what a, what an unfortunate answer for someone who's struggling to receive. I mean, what might be a more reasonable answer could be, we don't see a really clear um, tissue explanation for your symptoms. That that might be a reasonable thing to say with, with the imaging we have. But clearly something is wrong. I mean, to say nothing is wrong when someone's in significant distress, um, really the answer, I, I would love you to kind of expand on how you felt receiving that information from the providers. I, you know, I have no problem making my making my concerns known, you know, and I, I do know that I have to be, you know, my own advocate. Some providers are more or less um, accepting of that approach because I will, and as a scientist, I question, you know, well, what's the evidence for that? Well, this isn't working. And, and providers did literally use that exact phrase. Well, there's nothing really wrong with you. 
And I'm like, well, how can there be nothing wrong? Yeah, I would argue back. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you would think that, you know, individuals who have um, a wealth of knowledge and have spent time to gain that expertise would love nothing more than further inquiry from those they're working with. And yet we so often find the opposite, that, that being questioned seems to be the greatest offense. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's because whether it's just that they're they're used to not being questioned or whether it's somewhat of a defense mechanism because they don't have an answer for you. You know, so it's sort of a, a blame the patient kind of thing. That's a great call to all of us, I think, as providers to try to answer that question for ourselves. You know, when we are questioned, you know, what is it that rattles us? You know, is it that we're not comfortable being in that in that challenging space of telling someone who is struggling that we don't know the answer? I mean, have we have we gotten conditioned to to have the answer and, and thus out of habit and reflex think we should? Um, you know, what is it, or is it a true ego thing? You, you know, I mean, I, I think oftentimes we have to challenge ourselves to answer those questions. You know, you know, Cheryl, taken taken back before we, I, re- I really want to get into what you found that did help um, here in a minute. But before we do that, you made a comment that I think was was super important. That I, I don't want to skim by it. And that was, you said sort of early on as you were starting to experience these symptoms and kind of looking for answers and seeking care, that you felt like maybe if you would have been heard a bit better on the front end, that maybe some of what really was kind of a snowball or avalanche, if you will, of challenges from that point might have been avoided. And I'd love for you to expand on on exactly what you think might have helped, because as we have sort of put this podcast out there and have got a lot of dialogue going. One thing we've noticed is that a lot of people are looking for answers more so than solutions. And what I mean by that is a lot of people that are struggling or having a hard time just really want to get their questions out there and get some reasonable thoughts and information about it and just have a discussion. They don't even need their problem solved all the time. Sometimes they're willing to accept that maybe it isn't going to be solved 100%, but being able to have a really open discussion oftentimes puts them in a place where where they can cope and do a lot better. I mean, what do you feel like you could have gotten early on that might have saved some of this going forward? The best term I can think about describing it is confirmation bias mm-hmm. uh, and the story of the, the six blind men and the, and the elephant. Uh, all the providers that I saw would focus on one aspect of my problem versus looking at the whole picture. So there was, there was no sort of holistic approach. If I look back and everyone really focused on their specialty or what they were most trained in. Well, back when I had first uh, had the post-tib injury, interestingly enough, um, one part of the history that I had skipped over, and, and this will help answer, I think, your question in a better context, is about 20 years ago or so when I first got to grad school, I had had an unusual experience where I had had some like left shin pain, and, and it lasted for well over a year, and found that within two weeks of doing working on adduction, and it just it just went away within two weeks. I had the pain for a year, just completely went away. Initially, when I was telling the uh, first orthopedist dealing with the post-tib, and I said, you know, this kind of reminds me of something that happened, you know, 20 years ago that I experienced, where you know I don't really know if it was the same thing, but you know, I worked on adduction, and and that really helped me, you know. And he said, well, most people need more abduction. And sort of that was it. So I, I kind of felt like there was really not taken into account my personal history. It seems, again, what we see in 
healthcare today, typically when it comes to pain-related issues that we often say are musculoskeletal, though all pain we should probably say is neuromusculoskeletal in nature, that we look at parts. It's a reductionist mindset um, depending on who you see and largely who you see will predict what diagnosis you will get. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yet we, we're a musculoskeletal system, we're a moving system, yet we treat it as if, you know, they're unrelated parts. And I guess my question is, at what point did you, did you have someone really look at you from head to toe and listen to your full story kind of take it from that perspective as a system level or did you ever yeah i did and and actually this will be a great lead-in so so i was actually what i felt at at essentially rock bottom at at probably in in the summer of 2013 and i'm just gonna i'd like to briefly describe that some of the things that had happened where my nervous system really went out of control because that's really relevant to who helped me and and how i began to recover you know I, i felt like at that point i had seen you know, four orthopedists, uh, two massage therapists, two chiropractors, two podiatrists, and, and, you know, essentially, like I said, all these different diagnoses, and everyone dis- disagreed. And when I failed their treatment, nothing was wrong. So not only was I dealing with, though, pain in my feet and tingling and so forth, but I had a number of other systems. Um, I wound up developing constant tingling in not only my feet, but my right hand. When I'd raise my right hand, it felt like all the circulation was being cut off. You know, I, I could lightly stroke the skin kind of above in my back and cause tingling in my foot. I, I wound up turning my head then again to the right at one time or a couple times, and I wound up with severe vertigo. And ironically, that same day, I had an appointment with the orthopedist as a follow-up for one of the stress fractors. They were like, oh, it's just, it's just probably an ear infection. And I'm like, well, I don't know about that because I've had this, you know, pain, neck pain, and when I turn my head, I get dizzy that doesn't seem right and they're like oh no just take you know here you'll be fine it's just probably near thing and you'll be good well okay but you know then I I wound up suffering from nausea for over a year I I then developed started developing heart palpitations you know and I I couldn't stop I went to my regular dot my primary care and I said you know something is wrong you know I'm I'm having all this pain and plus I'm having these heart palpitations so they did an EKG I wound up having these weird sore throat like my lot of even pain in my throat and then I was being accused of asking for antibiotics, which I wasn't. I just wanted to figure out why my throat was hurting. And at first, I really didn't, I really did not connect these all together. But they really happened, you know, as a cluster. Uh, I even had some blur. I started having somewhat blurry vision, you know, when I was looking at my computer. And then I wound up having difficulty walking. I had a little some problems with stress incontinence. Uh, and I started getting kind of panic attacks where I actually felt like I was going to pass out, you know. Because I thought, what the heck is going on? I am actually, my heart's racing. I'm like worried I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm thinking, you know, just a couple years ago, I could run a sub 25K. What the heck is wrong with me? And I think that, you know, I felt like my nervous system was so jacked up that I could feel all of the seams of my clothes against my body. I'm not even kidding. Sleeping was a problem. I, I had to sleep on my back because sleeping on my side, either my fingers would go numb or my left leg would go entirely numb from hip to toe. Which for me made it seem, you know, it was confirmation in my mind that this is not just pain. You know, something is really going on. You know, how did I get to this point? I am 41 years old. You know, I have a son. I have a job. And I was worried about being essentially disabled at the age of 40. Late summer of 2003, 
shortly after the brain scan, I ran into the first physical therapist that had helped me with uh, the post-hib injury. I had heard that he had opened a, a cash PT business. So I said, can you help me? Can you please help me for those physical therapists who are considering going cash PT? It took so much pressure off of me and of him where we could just have our sessions and go nice and slow and not worry about a time and, and how many visits and when can I come back and, and what was going to be improved and so forth. The other thing is that he said, Cheryl, I don't know what's wrong, but we're going to find out and it's going to take time, but complex cases can be worked through and we're just going to peel away layers of the onion. And I felt like, thank you. Thank you for not telling me that you know what's wrong because that actually got me more angry than anything else of going to all those providers is people just coming up with some diagnosis that that really only applied to a very small percentage and you know really the the we started out by essentially trying to calm the nervous system which was really the ultimate first goal let's get rid of you know what what can we do to first calm the nervous system and given the the nausea and the vertigo you know we just started he started out with some very gentle uh, manual therapy, just to kind of um, help me restore more cervical mobility because I, I wasn't I wasn't moving my head at all. I mean, I was walking around like a robot, you know, just basically turning at my feet because I, I there was I was so worried, you know, about uh, vertigo, you know, <laughs> that I, I really just completely limited my movement, and I really felt that you know you there's I know there's a lot of debate on. PT Twitter about uh, manual therapy and placebo and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, you know, as a, as a chronic pain patient, you know, having some gentle touch and helping me realize that, you know, that my neck could be moved both side to side without pain was actually very reassuring, you know, and, and, and gave me more confidence that I could slowly start to move my own neck and start so I think that, that um, you know, anything really to do that we could kind of try to calm the nervous system, you know, was very beneficial. You know, we worked a lot on breathing, where it, it's such a, an amazing tool to calm the nervous system. And I'd really question why that is not one of the first things that chronic pain patients are taught. I think that's an excellent statement. And what you've just shared there, there's so many nuggets in what you've just said, Cheryl, and particularly that idea of you know, the provider actually saying, I don't know what is wrong, but, you know, we're going to work through this. And just the honesty, which, you know, took years to get to, I think is, um, is key. And the second thing you said is that idea of you were worried about vertigo, basically, because turning your neck created it. And I always say, you know, that, that we're rational beings. And when, you know, when the last 10 times I turned and I felt this crappy, I think it's a good learning experience not to turn that way, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I, I tell patients that's normal. The, the fear of movement is, you know, that means you're smart, your brain is smart, and it's trying to protect you from doing this bad thing. Unfortunately, it's getting a bad message. And I think that's how you mentioned the, the gentle touch and being able to, you know, guide a, a neck through some motions slowly and with with kindness, if you will, and demonstrating to the, to the body that, oh, okay, this is a, some safe zones there. So would you, did you think in those terms or, or I mean, that you, did you feel safer that you could turn your neck after some of those sessions? Definitely felt that, that fear was a big part of it. If we could calm down uh, some of the heightened sensitivity 
then I would be able to move forward. I mean, I felt that that even just being able to address and regain some of that cervical motion, you know, gave me hope and gave me optimism that when you're in chronic pain, you know, the bucket is full and every drop that you can remove from the bucket helps prevent that spillover. It's been bugging me the whole episode, so I must ask. Yeah, you go ahead. mentioned early on that, you know, you really talk to people, you didn't prefer to have them on your left side, is that correct? Mm-hmm, yep. And is it still that way? It is slightly that way still, but I have greatly, at this point, greatly improved my cervical and upper thoracic mobility to the point where I have more thoracic and cervical mobility now than I have had since I was 10 years old. Interesting. It's so interesting because you said, you know, that happened when you're pretty young, that event, and you just think about how, you know, now what we're starting to realize in, in brain mapping and, and just the ability for that, that smudging, if you will, that occurs in the sensory cortex of the uh, of the cervical spine there that likely that that you know the neck really did not have a good representation of where it was in space and you know mm-hmm. it is fascinating how you know probably it stems from way back when and uh, kind of set up a little bit of a uh, cascade, if you will. I always felt, especially after the rotational injury that I had mentioned when I was weeding, and uh, I think that in combination with, like you said, some of the brain maps for my cervical positioning, is I felt one of the biggest problems is that my, I felt as if my upper body was rotated with respect to my lower body. I felt twisted. Interesting. And, and I could not get past that. And you no, know, interestingly, in, in support of that, there were some clear objective differences in internal and external rotation in my limbs. So for example, my right arm uh, really, or my right shoulder really lacked uh, internal rotation and I had a lot of excessive external rotation. Whereas in my left arm, the internal rotation was fine, but I really lacked external rotation. In the opposite in my hips too, my right hip was sort of internally rotated. You could see sort of my knee kind of internally rotated. And I didn't have the internal rotation that I needed in my left leg. So I had in my mind, I'm rotated. See, something is not right. I just kept, my body is rotated. I didn't even stand with one leg. Even if I was standing facing something, one foot would be standing slightly in front of the other foot. Yeah, and and I often tell folks that, you know, we don't, it doesn't matter. What we do know is how our body's perceiving where we are in space and where we are in space clearly are not aligned. You know, I always tell folks I'm a, bent in different places than I used to be, but my brain's cool with it. You know, I mean, it, it, it's accepted that you know, <laughs> yeah, when, sure. when it's not is when, you know, it's a constant free for all. I like to say that between where we believe we're at and where we're not. And I'm curious, did you go down, did you use a lot of mirrors and kind of some movement based therapy using mirrors, getting some perception of self as you kind of move through your, your journey? You know, no one had no one had used that. No one had brought that up. We had a lot of discussions about pain science. We had a lot of discussions about the principle of movements and movement patterns. And we discussed injury and rehabilitation and corrective exercise and strength. And, you know, I, I actually felt like I almost did a second postdoc. I felt that some providers relied very heavily on the psychological part of the biopsychosocial model and not enough on the bio. Yeah, I understand there's not damage, but I can't control my foot. 
So we need to do something about that, you know? <laughs> I'm always curious, and since, you know, we got a, a scientist on the line, and shout out to Penn State, where I, I spent, there, I was there in 94 to 97, actually. Cheryl. Well, we were there at the same time, because that's when I finished my PhD, 94 really? to 99, so yeah. Awesome. You know, I often wonder, are, you know, even within the next decade or two, the term psychology and what it really means, I just see it's crumbling in the face of what we're seeing now, getting more and more understanding of, the, of neurology and of decision making and of body's perception of self. And we often say, you know, that the tissue is not wrong. Well, actually, yeah, there is something wrong. It's just it's, it's a different level of analysis, right? It was at the, the, the neurological level, there was a dysfunction that, frankly, we don't have really good tools to measure at this point. Just because we can't measure it does not mean it is not real. We, sure. we know that something's wrong. It's observable, wasn't it? <laughs> right, right. I struggle sometimes, and we're, I'm in Colorado, Colorado State University is right next door, and, you know, work with a lot of folks, you know, scientists, and sometimes when we go down and we're having discussions, we still kind of default into this brain-body bifurcation. And I'm wondering your thoughts on how you would say going forward and using principles of, uh, you know, mindfulness, principles of breathing that have often been put into that domain of perhaps psychology, but it's really a frame of reference. I see it as, I might see it very differently, this mindfulness, meditation, and breathing from a very physiological or neurological perspective. Just curious your thoughts since we have you on the phone. (laughs) Mm, yeah, this is a, probably a little outside my area of expertise, but <laughs> I also didn't first appreciate the close relationship of the brain uh, and how the brain essentially is, is controlling everything. And I, I definitely agreed that earlier on I had, well, here's your muscles and here's your brain and, and not really appreciating sort of the rapid neurophysiological response that can occur and knowing that that is really more about brain control rather than, you know, muscle strength per se, or, you know, building up muscle hypertrophy or what have you. Well, you know, one thing that I can comment on as a scientist is that, you know, I love evidence. That can be a problem in cases where you're talking about chronic pain um, when people want to use this so-called evidence-based medicine, because time and time again, I was told that I did not fit the medical model. And that evidence suggests this should work. Evidence suggests you should be better. Well, I'm sorry, but chronic pain patients is N equals one. Throw your biases out the door. And, you know, most uh, random clinical trials, randomized clinical trials, you know, they're not including uh, patients with highly sensitized nervous systems. And and quite honestly, I think anything can go. So uh, while I don't want to dismiss evidence-based medicine, because I'm not saying it should just be, you know, ad hoc and, and so forth, but... Providers who are taking care of chronic pain patients need to be aware that that they may need to be thinking outside the box. Yeah, and, and Cheryl, that highlights you know really what evidence based you know evidence informed practice um, really is supposed to be, right? I mean, we're supposed to be including that that therapeutic alliance that you spoke of when when that physical therapy provider that you had you know took that moment to say, hey, this is going to be a bit of a journey, but but you know these complex cases can be addressed, and you know really form that relationship with you that you felt like, hey, I might really get better this time. 
you know, th- this is a place where I might really start to improve. I mean, that is evidence informed, as is, you know, using your own clinical expertise and history to, to recognize that these are going to be challenging cases. I think when you look at your story, it's a classic case of searching for a simple answer to a very complex problem. Right. And, and that still is something that we yearn for because who doesn't like simple answers? I mean, if you can see it on a picture or if you can, if you can name it, well, then we're in business. And I think time after time, we try that as opposed to front loading and really doing that, that relationship building work that honestly gets to the root of somebody's suffering. And, and that ultimately is what so many people are, are looking for. You know, Cheryl, as we, as we sort of head towards a wrap here, I'm curious for you to kind of inform all of us, how, how are you doing now? How would, would you rate your overall recovery as successful? Really, I'm asking this because there's so many listeners um, who are patients, not providers, and are sort of, it's sort of an ongoing challenge that they're dealing with a lot of these type of symptoms. And, and, and I'm just curious, could you give some perspective on how you're doing and things that you're incorporating to help better manage and thrive and just sort of your overall perspective um, having gone through all this journey? Uh, the, the physical therapist who who helped me the most, who taught me how to strength train and, and so forth. And actually, he he actually even encouraged me to get my personal trainer certification. You know, while I was learning to strength train, we had a really good relationship. I even had the opportunity to work with a couple of his uh, clients that were learning how to do strength work. At one point, I had reached a plateau. You know, we were at this point where, you know, I could... I could squat and I could deadlift and I could do a get up, but I still felt that there was still something else. Something was kind of wrong. I was still having a little tingling in my foot. We agreed I, I would try seeking care with another local provider, and and I did. And I was a chiropractor with a sports physician specialization, and and he was the one who actually got back my my return to running. So I think that both of them had give gave me the tools and the skills that I needed to solve my own problem. I found that as I improved my function, then my pain and tingling and other neurological symptoms would decrease. I focus on um, improving function, improving performance. And that has really allowed me, you know, over time to get back to running. I am now cycling. I, oh, oh, also another one is I decided to learn how to swim. And I think that learning, learning a new skill is a, a good way to sort of open up that opportunity for your brain to learn and to be open to, you know, new movement patterns and, and so forth. And now I'm signed up to do my first triathlon in just a couple of weeks. Nice. Well, Cheryl, yeah. I'm, I'm, that's so awesome. I'm smiling over here the whole time you're talking because, you know, so many things went well here at the end. You know, I, it sounds like that journey, especially in the middle, you know, got pretty murky. But then you met the right provider. I love the fact that that provider um, had the requisite humility to refer you to another provider to maybe be able to move even forward once you were plateaued. Like we don't see enough of that interdisciplinary and intradisciplinary referral when somebody plateaus. And just I think that whole combination of humility and taking the long road and honesty and relationship building really got you to a place where you could shift that paradigm to function off of pain because you understood it better. And that's a gigantic success. It, you're making it sound, I guess, more smoothly than it actually went, right? Because I think that we were at a point with this physical therapist who helped me tremendously, and I, I'm ex- extremely grateful for everything that he did. We also, it wasn't always a smooth either. We had setbacks, and not everything that we did actually helped, but, you know, on average, you know, tremendous improvement. But we definitely got to the point where, where, where frustrations were building. You know, and I, I and kind of arguing about some things. And, and I think that that sort of told both of us that maybe it was time that we were we've done all we could do together, you know, 
<laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah, all good. Yeah, yeah and, and, and it's never cl- overly clean. I, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't make it sound so polished. As the one thing seamlessly lend into another. You know? Sh- Cheryl, I, I can't say thank you enough for your time and story. Do you mind um, if you're willing? Um, so, if other patients have questions or, or want to reach out and connect with you, I think there's so many valuable lessons here. Your blog was fantastic. Do, do you mind kind of letting folks know where they can find you and follow you and, and engage with you? I'm on Twitter, and that's at Keller Capone, PhD. I, I will say that I, I kind of go about 50% science and 50% movement and strength. Yeah, I've you know, noticed. I, I probably yeah. <laughs> I alienate like half my followers at any given time, you know, because I'll be posting about genomics and some assay. And then next thing I know, I'm like, oh, I'm on Summer of Move, Team M Quattro. Let's go, you know. <laughs> so, you know, they're probably like, what is she talking about? But anyway, that it's really fun. And so far, um, I've enjoyed that. I'm also on Instagram at Cheryl Keller Capone. And, and Instagram is more definitely more about my uh, strength and pain journey and movement. You know, I like to post, uh, I'll post videos of myself and do a self critique and offer some, some advice. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, Dr. Cheryl Keller Capone, Science and Strength. And my blog is on WordPress, which is Cheryl Keller Capone, wordpress.com. Awesome. Perfect. Well, Cheryl, thank you again so much. This was enlightening. I think there were some great calls to providers here about kind of the way we handle questions and the way we interact and front loading and all of those challenging concepts and some real pearls for patients too, who are, who are struggling and kind of looking for solutions and looking for folks to come alongside them. So sincere thanks for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me as a guest. I, I'm honored and, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Outstanding, Cheryl. You have a most excellent day. Great. Thank you. You as well. I can't emphasize enough how powerful it is to hear the patient voice and we'll continue to bring the patient voice to this podcast. Dr. Cheryl Keller Capone really gave some pearls there and I hope the listeners were really tuning in, particularly those folks that have gone through severe, long-term persistent pain and this feeling of literally, I don't know what is wrong with me, but it is it clearly is severe, it's serious, it's not good. And we have to understand that as professionals out there, it is our call to really make a difference in helping these folks along the way, journeying together to a better solution when it comes to chronic and persistent pain. So we can't thank Cheryl enough for joining us on this podcast and giving her voice to the listeners out there. Please follow us on uh, social media. We're at ispinstitute.com, evidenceinmotion.com. You can follow Jeff and I on Twitter. And please, if you're enjoying this podcast, if you can go to iTunes and leave us a review, that would be most excellent. Please have an awesome day. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.